Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, September 22nd, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we will be reading the following articles. Black Gold Shifting to Quality Compost by Will Matsuka. Let It Flow by Jesse J. Gray. Sweaty Greeley Soul by Carter Ferryman. Bad Education by Jesse J. Gray. Branching Out by Adam Perry. Cinema Was a Comfort by Michael J. Casey. Band in the USA by Mickey Huff. Sushi Journey by John Lendorf. Black Gold, Shifting to Quality Compost. Contamination Spurs Changes in Boulder Policies by Will Matsuka. The journey of a banana peel doesn't end in the compost bin. That's only the beginning. Whether it's in a 65-gallon bin outside a family home or in one of the receptacles camouflaged around Boulder, the peel will eventually get picked up by one of several waste haulers serving the city. From there, the peel is joined by organic waste from 100 other bins in the same truck and taken to a transfer facility. That truck's load will end up with four other truckloads, each estimated to have 100 bins worth of organic waste, in one large trailer headed to A1 Organics, the state's largest organic processor, to be composted. A1 staff dumps the load, inspects it, and finds a shard of glass. The load can't be accepted because of contamination. It's a frustrating and finicky process, as one non-organic item can ruin hundreds of bins and the whole truckload's potential to create compost from organic waste. This is an all-too-familiar story for Keensburg-based A1 Organics. They've rejected 30 to 35 loads over the last seven weeks. Instead of that organic waste being composted, it gets sent to the landfill. That's why we're at a point now where we can't keep hitting this path, says Clinton Sander, the marketing manager at A1. Despite investing millions of dollars in equipment to help remove plastics and other contaminants, the recent rise of contamination led A1 to start charging waste haulers a contamination and reloading fee, starting August 4th. But City of Boulder staff and waste haulers are on board with A1 to create higher quality compost, despite the challenge of decreasing contamination. On September 13th, the city changed its compost rules for businesses to allow them to remove front-of-house and customer-facing compost receptacles, which are notorious for introducing non-organics to waste hauler loads. I think front-of-house compost receptacles have always been an issue, 
says Jamie Harkins, Sustainability Coordinator for Boulder, acknowledging the confusing consumer composting experience, especially with common foodware items that look eco-friendly but are not certified compostable. Suzanne Jones, Executive Director of EcoCycle, one of Boulder's waste haulers, says the changes in policy by both A1 and the City of Boulder are a push in the right direction. These policy changes create an opportunity for us to get it right and produce the quality compost that we've always said was our intent, says Jones, who also helps EcoCycle manage the county-owned Boulder County Recycling Center. Now, we need to step up to the plate and follow through. To avoid A1's contamination fees, EcoCycle drivers are inspecting bins before picking them up. If there's any contamination, they give immediate feedback to that customer. Even with these new policies in place, Sander says A1 is still rejecting loads. A1 has also seen up to 50% reduction of loads from some waste haulers, signaling that contaminated loads are being successfully turned around earlier in the process. But while the extra filtering means less contamination issues for A1, ultimately, that means those organics aren't making it to them to be composted. All this work for dirt? They call it black gold for a reason. Compost is the solution to many of our greatest challenges, says Jones, of the benefits of compost. Jones says that 40% of the waste stream is organic, which creates an opportunity for composting to play a pivotal role in landfill diversion and decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. When organic waste enters anaerobic conditions without oxygen in landfills, it generates methane, a greenhouse gas more than 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide. It can also stay in the atmosphere for about a decade, much longer than carbon dioxide. Compost also helps with water retention. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 1% of organic matter in the top 6 inches of soil can hold around 27,000 gallons of water per acre. Sander says the final compost product of A1 has an average of 30 to 50% organic matter. Benefits extend further into creating healthier soils, increasing agricultural yields, and providing carbon sequestration. What you put in this bin becomes something that helps heal our nutrient-depleted soils and absorbs carbon and creates more diverse, healthy ecosystems, says Leah Kelleher, Boulder's climate communications specialist. Boulder County adopted a resolution to reach zero waste, or darn near, by 2025. According to the EcoCycle 2021 report, the county recycled and composted 43% of its waste in 2020. Many of the cities within Boulder County are the top communities in the state of Colorado when it comes to composting and recycling, says Jones. Best in the county is Boulder, which diverted 53% of its waste from the landfill in 2020, 20% was composted, with the goal of diverting 85% of waste by 2025. These numbers are higher than both state, 15.3%, and national, 32%, waste diversion numbers. Looking ahead. Sander says it will take a multi-level solution and intentionality to clean the stream of organics. We need accountability at all touch points. 
from curbside all the way until it lands on A1's ground, he says. Sander emphasized the importance of staff conducting quality control at source points as well, while acknowledging that not everyone has the resources to do so. On top of hauling, EcoCycle is leading efforts to educate students about recycling and composting in the Boulder Valley School District, as well as advocating at the state level. Jones thinks there's room for growth, but is optimistic about policy changes. Boulder has a chance to create a model that works for the rest of Colorado, the opportunity to create a compost system that really works. Let it flow. New Dairy Arts Center exhibition unpacks the politics of water in a changing climate by Jesse J. Gray. The Colorado River is in trouble. Now, in its 23rd year of drought, the once mighty water source, flowing nearly 1,500 miles from the Rocky Mountains to the Gulf of California, is drying up at an alarming rate, sending potentially devastating ripple effects through communities and ecosystems whose existence depends on it. The decimation of this crucial river system was among the grim harbingers of climate catastrophe discussed during a U.S. Senate hearing on Western drought earlier this summer, which spurred a suite of emergency measures to address record-low reservoirs in the Centennial State and beyond. But can artists illuminate existential problems like the water crisis in ways lawmakers can't? That's the central question driving Water is Life a new group exhibition on display at the Dairy Arts Center from September 23rd through November 19th. Showcasing a diverse slate of artists from across the country, the eco-conscious show explores the politics of water access in a changing climate. Being here in the metro area, a lot of our water is brought from different regions, which is leaving other folks out, says Water is Life co-curator and exhibiting artist J.C. Bayal. This is an opportunity to start having real conversations about how our water is being distributed, who has access to it, and how we are caring for it. Other featured artists include El Paso-born Zeke Pena, who expands on his 12-color serigraph, The River, meditating on the past, present, and future of the Rio Grande River on the U.S.-Mexico border. Educator Teresa Klaus offers a closer-to-home exploration with a new series of color studies using water from the Colorado River to create a hand-felted map of the essential and iconic water source. Elsewhere in the upcoming Dairy Arts exhibition, visitors can expect a deep and diverse offering of works in a variety of media designed to spark dialogue surrounding water and how we use it. Many of these artists have stories about bodies of water they once swam in or were close to growing up, which at this point have become contaminated. Now, this fond memory is tainted and toxic, says Drew Austin, curator of visual arts at the Dairy Arts Center. There's a ton of personal connections that run really deep throughout the show. Painting an Ecosystem For Bayal, the journey to Water is Life began on the Navajo Reservation in 2013. 
That's when the artist and his friends set out on a res-wide road trip across the Four Corners area of the Southwest, painting murals and hosting talking circles to discuss tribal water rights. But he says the mission of exploring the politics of local waterways soon became bigger than his slice of the world. It started to grow into this more all-inclusive movement for me, Bayal says, because water has become more commodified and less available, not only for indigenous people, but for people in general. Despite casting a broader net in his critical conversation about access, Bayal, now based in the Denver metro, says the tribal traditions of his ancestors color his approach to the subject of water and the art-making process writ large. My indigenous background influences how I want to represent and create my works. Having that culture and tradition means a whole lot to me, he says. There's a lot of knowledge, wisdom, and teachings I can share with people, whether they're native or not. Visitors to the upcoming Dairy Arts exhibition will experience one important piece of Bayal's intergenerational education through four large panels of acrylic on canvas. Together, the individual works explore water's essential role in the Navajo creation story. In Navajo creation, water would create division or water would create unity, or it would flood out different worlds. I'm painting about that as an underlying theme, Bayal says. But I also have images of animals, plant life, and minerals that have a relationship with each other. I guess, in reality, I'm painting an ecosystem. Fellow Water is Life artist Anna Tsularakis also draws from her Navajo background in the new exhibition. In her second story, an update on a previous installation at the University of Denver, the local artist and CU Boulder professor references tribal butchery traditions in the space between sculpture, video, and narrative poetry. The result is a discipline-scrambling installation that tells a haunting story of violence through blood and water. I'm not usually so direct in my work in terms of what I'm speaking about or speaking to. My pieces are not usually as aggressive as these are, Sularakis says. They're very new, and it's something I'm still working out, but I'm really excited about it. But for Tsularakis, the new water-focused exhibition is about more than the experience of a single artist. As climate change continues to ravage the world's water sources and forge new political realities, she says the show's potential as a catalyst for social change lies squarely in its multiplicity of perspectives. I think all those different narratives and voices need to be part of the conversation to be truly heard, she says. Because people who are still trying to figure out if they should take action on climate change need to find their counterpart in that story. They need to find that connection. And I think the more voices that are part of it, the more possibility for people to find that connection and realize they're a part of this fight to save the planet. Sweaty, greely soul. How the Burroughs built a home for funk in a most unlikely place. By Carter Ferryman. A music pastor and a trumpet player walk into a bar. 
It's May of 2013, and Johnny Burroughs, a licensed minister, is at open mic night at Patrick's Irish Pub in Greeley to perform soul songs by Otis Redding, Bill Withers, and other covers from his favorite genre. Craig Basarich, another soul music fanatic and a trumpet player at University of Northern Colorado, is there to take in the music. Burroughs transfixed Basarich on that late spring evening, his movement on stage, the raw passion in his voice, the way he captured an audience, even a pub crowd, with relative ease. Basarich wanted in. It was there, between distant mountain ranges and nearby pastures, under a soft orange greeley sunset, that the two musicians agreed upon a joint performance. Basarich got the horn section together, and Burroughs handled the rhythm section. We planned one show only, Burroughs laughs. That was the agreement, but then the first show happened. People went bananas, he said. I turned to Craig and gave him that holy crap look, like, how is this happening? Then we were offered another show. That offer turned into another and another and another. Local shows snowballed into sets all over the country. Nine years later, the eight members of the one-off group, known as the Burroughs, are now cult heroes for soul music in the least likely of places. Greeley couldn't be farther from a hub of soul and funk, both geographically and culturally. Burroughs will be the first to tell you this. The town is an agricultural hub steeped in country twang and Old West tradition. Acres of corn and annual rodeos come to mind, not disco balls and sweat-soaked dancing. None of this matters to Burroughs, though. As long as he's got a microphone and a stage to create organized chaos, local popularity is inevitable. Oftentimes, it doesn't need to be a stage. Burroughs remembers jumping from a table with his bandmates at the Bohemian Beer Garden just off Pearl Street, figuratively setting the poor house on fire with sweaty soul music in the wee hours of the morning. I've literally been doing it my whole life, Burroughs explains. I grew up in the church and have been leading worship since I was 15. The goal has remained the same for Burroughs, whose live presence comes naturally. With any show, when people let go and give themselves to that moment, something beautiful happens, he says. The town supported us first. Burroughs never ceases to push for something new in front of an audience. Soul music, throughout its deeply rooted history, demands improvisation. Luckily, Burroughs has a group so deeply entrenched with talent that, if he wants to take a risk, his eight-piece ensemble, four in the horn section, four in the rhythm section, picks it up seamlessly. The group, whose only remaining original members are Burroughs and baritone saxophone player Hayden Farr, hail entirely from the University of Northern Colorado's nationally renowned jazz program. Our bass player, Brian Claxton, is a doctor of jazz drumming. He tours around the world on the drums, but remains a dazzling bassist with us, Burroughs says. Greeley is just an incredible music community that's allowed us to grow. Another facet of the Burroughs' success is their unwavering dedication to the community. We've always tried to not just talk about what we believe will lift our community up, says Burroughs, but to actually stay fully involved. Their work stretches to numerous organizations like Weld Food Bank, Greeley Boys and Girls Clubs, Habitat for Humanity, 
and an ongoing partnership with the Greeley-Evans School District titled Bands Give Back, a campaign giving local artists a chance to uplift area students with the power of music education. We used it during the pandemic to raise around $10,000 to purchase instruments for Weld County Schools, Burroughs says. Since then, we've opened it up to music masterclasses for schools around northern Colorado. The push-pull between Greeley and the Burroughs is a big part of what gives the band its unique energy, and is a testament to the power of community in fostering a vibrant creative scene. The town supported us first, Burroughs says. That's why, during the band's inaugural Christmas show, they solicited donations to the Weld County Toys for Tots in lieu of traditional tickets. Taking a step back and looking at the borough's ties to the town they represent, the band's success in playing a regionally unorthodox sound is hardly surprising, and perhaps expected. In the Studio The borough's first full-length studio album, Got to Feel, 2018, came a few years after their debut self-titled EP in 2014. The Burroughs take their time between releases, and when asked about the possibility of another studio album, Burroughs hints at something huge. This past spring and all throughout the summer, we've been doing some very intense recording and mixing sessions, he said. It won't come out until next year, and this is the first time I think I've spoken about it on paper. We are unbelievably excited to give fans our first full length since 2018. It's a no-holds-barred smackdown record, like James Brown and Prince going at it. Their most notable release to date, Sweaty Greeley Soul, is a 2015 live recording at the city's Moxie Theater. It encapsulates everything the boroughs look to project on stage. On intro slash turn it loose, Burroughs hypes up his octet in front of a roaring crowd, between pockets of max-volume, horn-bleeding, drum-smashing goodness. Halfway through Sweaty Soul Part 1, a full-scale exhibition beginning with Burroughs' melodic shouting over speedy percussion, the horns burst into blissful brass beauty. Listeners can almost hear the crowd's stress dissolving. Burroughs anticipates a similar atmosphere when the band headlines the upcoming Lafayette Music Festival on Saturday, October 8th at Nacy's. We're going to create a space where they can walk in and let their troubles fall away, Burroughs says. The high energy we bring on stage is so you can dance equally as hard on the floor. We'll surprise you with songs you definitely know, and with songs you definitely do not. This approach to musicality one of unflinching love and positivity, transferred through the mind, soul, and sweat glands, is why a little old farm town, and nearly every town that has hosted the boroughs since that first performance nearly a decade ago, buys into the mission. I just want to make sure everybody walks out of that place feeling like life is good, and that it's only going to get better, Burroughs says. And if it's only for that night that you could feel it, then we've done our job. Bad Education Violence and trauma at Indian boarding schools take center stage in Museum of Boulder screening of Home from School, The Children of Carlisle by Jesse J. Gray Growing up partly on the Turtle Mountain Indian Reservation in North Dakota, Gerilyn Dikotu was often puzzled by the rigid and disciplinary way her mother ran the household. 
She used to say things like, I'll make you kneel on a broomstick, or I'll wash your mouth out with soap. You know, I'll make you scrub the floors with a toothbrush, she recalls. I don't think we really understood where that came from, except we knew that at some point she had been in boarding schools. For indigenous children in the 19th and 20th centuries, these residential programs run by the federal government were a far cry from the camaraderie, prestige, and privilege typically associated with the innocuous term boarding school. This was so completely the opposite of that, says Dikotu, an enrolled member of Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. These places were less about education and more about forced assimilation. Since Ellis Island became a symbol for immigrants looking to build a life in the New World, the mythology of the United States has centered around the idea of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. But for the first peoples who established sovereign nations on these lands, that process of becoming one wasn't a choice, and for many, the price of assimilation was paid in abuse, trauma, and even death. As Captain Richard Henry Pratt said during an 1892 speech in Denver, the mission of these federal boarding schools, whose operators took children from their families, replacing their tribal traditions with forced learning of English, Anglo culture, and Christian dogma, was disturbingly simple. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Colorado was home to five such boarding schools, from the Grand Junction Indian School on the Western Slope to the Good Shepherd Industrial School in Denver. Another was located on the grounds of Fort Lewis outside Durango, where History Colorado researchers are now conducting a state-mandated examination of the site after mass graves were discovered last year at similar residential schools in Canada. As former board president of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition and a former attorney with the Boulder-based Native American Rights Fund, Dikotu has dedicated her professional life to the uplift of indigenous people, including the excavation of this dark and misunderstood chapter of American life. There was so much silence around it, she says. That was kind of a hidden part of our family history and a hidden part of native history. Not even past. That once hidden history not fully understood by Dikotu until after her mother's death from breast cancer at age 47, will meet the light during a screening of the 2021 film Home from School, The Children of Carlisle at the Museum of Boulder on Thursday, September 22nd. The documentary by director Jeffrey O'Gara centers on the Carlisle Industrial School in southeastern Pennsylvania, the nation's flagship native boarding institution, where hundreds of children died over the course of its 39 operating years. Among the Carlisle victims were three northern Arapaho boys, Horse, Little Chief, and Little Plume, whose remains were repatriated in 2017 by a delegation of tribal citizens from Wyoming. Home from School is the story of their journey from the Cowboy State to the Keystone State, taking viewers into the beating heart of this still raw history and the efforts to heal intergenerational trauma. It's a film that can really change and deepen people's understanding of the facets of violence of colonialism, says Emily Zinn, Education Director at the Museum of Boulder. For people who don't have an understanding of the concept of cultural genocide, 
I think they will carry this story with them for the rest of their lives. To help unpack those heavy concepts, Decotu, a new member of the Museum of Boulder's Board of Directors, will be joined in a post-screening conversation by the film's associate producer, Jordan Dresser, a chairman of the Northern Arapaho tribe, a guest curator and longtime collaborator with the museum. Our work as a historic society is really about forging strong, inclusive, and engaged citizenship, Zin says. And there's no better way to do that than by working in service of repair with the communities and individuals who have been disenfranchised and against whom violence has been committed in order to live the lives we live in Boulder today. For Dikotu, whose own family history sports the bruises of the forced assimilation at the heart of home from school, the film and resulting conversation is an opportunity for the public to explore how the violence of settler colonialism remains baked into public life in America, and how we might begin to affect change. It's still very much in our institutions and our way of thinking, she says. I don't know how you undo all the damage, but some of it definitely needs to be undone. On screen, Home from School, The Children of Carlisle, Sold Out. 6 p.m. Thursday, September 22nd, Museum of Boulder, 2205 Broadway. The film is also streaming free on demand through the Canopy online video platform with your Boulder Public Library card. Branching out. Local nonprofit Roots Music Project aims to regrow the Boulder music scene with expanded offerings for artists, fans, and venues by Adam Perry. The next time you bemoan a bad driver in Boulder with a Texas license plate, or see another go back to Texas and tell your friends Colorado sucks bumper sticker, remember a lot of good things we enjoy around here have come from the Lone Star State. Alamo Draft House, Torchy's Tacos, and Dave Kennedy, founder of the local nonprofit Roots Music Project. Kennedy sold the Texas company that became Match.com, which he co-founded in 1996 and has been a partner at Alamo Drafthouse since it first branched out of Austin in 2004. With his new front-range venture designed to give local musicians and venues a boost, the 56-year-old is intent on bringing small concerts back to Boulder. The Fox and Boulder theaters keep a veritable stranglehold on live music here and local acts seek something in between the cafe and small bar scene and big-time venues. That's where the Roots Music Project comes in, offering a performance space for local gigging musicians and providing a suite of services to help Boulder establishments develop thriving live music programs. As a student at the University of Texas, Kennedy was obsessed with seeing blues music at the legendary Antony's, where, as a kid, his parents snuck him into a Muddy Waters concert. His love of music stuck with him, but didn't become a big part of his professional life until he moved to Colorado in 2004. I graduated, had a corporate career, started a business, had kids, and I played a little bit of guitar in high school, but pretty much put the guitar under the bed till I was like 40, Kennedy says. My kids started doing a rock camp at Doghouse Music in Lafayette, and I saw they had an adult band camp. 
I wanted to play with other people, so I did it and met a bunch of people and had a horrible band, but we had fun playing. We rented a practice space, and when we'd finally practiced and were good enough to play a gig somewhere, I started trying to just network and say, how can we get a gig? But the group had a hard time finding places to play. I said, okay, we're going to start a nonprofit, and we're going to organize gigs, and then we're just going to organize shows, pay the bands, and create opportunities, Kennedy says. We are booking some national acts, too, but we always pair them with a local support act. That's part of the ethos. That's why Kennedy founded the Roots Music Project, which secured its current space in 2019, inside one of the warehouses near Pearl Street and 47th Street and recently took its mission to foster the local scene for musicians, fans, and venues into overdrive with concerts, lessons, rehearsal availability, and more. The three pillars of it are fans, artists, and venues, Kennedy explains. He says he realizes the importance of small music venues like Denver's High Dive, where, on the way to headlining big-time clubs and theaters, bands can develop in a place where people only walk in the door to see live music. The tiny Velvet Elk Lounge is helping bridge that gap in Boulder, as is Roots. Along with hosting concerts, lessons, and rehearsals, Roots offers free songwriting circles and even a service where a backing band learns musicians' original compositions and helps bring them alive. There is also talk of launching DIY management and publicity workshops. Muddy Waters guitarist Bob Margolin, once a staple at the much-missed Outlook Hotel in Boulder, will play Roots on Friday, September 30th, and host an invitation-only masterclass blues workshop the night before. Return to Form In managing a space that is part venue, part incubator, Kennedy draws inspiration from Fort Collins' strong local music community, particularly the city's vital music district. We are on a smaller scale than them. We're trying to get our focus and our story really clear, he says. We have a great event space, but the mission is really way broader than that. We have aspirations to do more things. Roots also provides local musicians the opportunity to work and volunteer at the space, from running sound to doing social media. Everybody involved seems to just care. During a sold-out show at Roots on a steamy Friday night this July, the venue opened up its big garage door for air and to let the music wash over the community. It felt like one of those unforgettable nights seeing music in high school or college when the venue could be anywhere your parents' basement, a clothing store, a skate park, and being part of the local scene was all that mattered. Gasoline Lollipop's frontman Clay Rose, who Kennedy says has deep roots in Boulder, no pun intended, hosted his first songwriting showcase at Roots on September 21st, with more to come on Thursdays every month moving forward. It has been my hope for the past decade that someone would open a small, independent listening room in Boulder. Beginning in the mid-90s, they were all systematically removed due to corporate greed in one form or another, Rose says. When I heard that Dave had opened up Roots Music Project, I jumped at the opportunity to pitch him my idea for a monthly songwriter showcase. 
He seemed equally eager to host the event, as our visions of nurturing Boulder's dwindling music scene were apparently parallel. As the Roots Music Project continues to grow its offerings for local artists, Rose says the ultimate value of the nonprofit lies in its potential to restore a once thriving local music scene. Boulder was once known around the country as a town where new artists could come to blossom, he says. I'm grateful to Dave. His understanding of Boulder's history and our current goldmine of talent may be just what this town needs to regenerate its amputated limbs. On the bill, raw Chicago blues with Bob Margolin, guitarist for Muddy Waters. Doors at 6.30 and music at 7.30 p.m. Friday, September 30th. Roots Music Project, 4747 Pearl Street, Suite V3A, Boulder. Tickets, $15 to $25 at Eventbrite. Cinema was a comfort. Mark Cousins on The Story of Film, A New Generation, by Michael J. Casey. Movies aren't just making history, they're making our history. Filmmaker Mark Cousins muses in his latest documentary, The Story of Film, A New Generation. They're showing us what we are, what we want, what we fear, what we've lost, and what we're still willing to fight for. Cinema was a comfort, Cousins tells me over Zoom. He's talking about watching movies and making movies. This movie, during the COVID-19 pandemic, if there's a slightly melancholic quality to the end of the story of film A New Generation, it comes from that. Cousins is probably best known for 2011's The Story of Film, a 15-hour road trip through cinema's first 100 years of ideas and innovation. The movie isn't just a crash course in the medium, it's an invigoration of cinematic appreciation. And not just for traditional signposts, but for cinema from every corner of the world. To borrow one of his phrases, movies are good at leaving boundaries. In the story of film, as in most of his work, Cousins lets his hushed and reverent Northern Irish accent guide viewers through decades, countries, and artistic movements with ease. He revitalizes films and filmmakers that have been talked to death. Take the recently departed Jean-Luc Godard, a director Cousins calls a kind of cattle prod into cinema. He electrified us, Cousins says. I'm looking for that kind of electricity, you could say, that voltage, that cattle prod. And it's still there. Hence, the release of the story of film, A New Generation, a nearly three-hour exploration of cinema's last two decades. It was a mission Cousins didn't initially want to undertake. But then a lot of good stuff happened, he says. Social change, technological change, and aesthetic change. And I thought, why don't I give it another go? A new generation is loaded with Cousins' enthusiasm for the aliveness of cinema. It's what keeps his work from feeling elite or snobby. And it's right there, in a new generation's opening, a sly analysis of two of the most watched movie scenes in recent memory, Frozen and Joker. You can probably guess the scenes from each. Both involve staircases, both feature outcasts ecstatically embracing their inner selves. Only one character sings, but the song speaks for both of them. When you see an innovative mainstream film, it's so exciting, Cousin says. The energy is not only in art cinema. 
Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was in some ways as innovative as Godard. A New Generation is officially a companion piece to the story of film, but it fits beautifully next to Cousin's other great essay documentaries, Women Make Film, A Story of Children and Film, The Eyes of Orson Welles, and the soon-to-be-released My Name is Alfred Hitchcock. And he's back at work. On the day I spoke with him, Cousins had just signed the contract for a new movie, The Story of Documentary Cinema. A good international history, like a big 10-hour history of documentary cinema. The future of cinema's history has a grand champion. Band in the USA as Banned Books Week celebrates its 40th anniversary, it's time to unequivocally condemn censorship. By Mickey Huff. In her best-selling novel, Speak, young adult author Laurie Hulse Anderson wrote, Censorship is the child of fear and the father of ignorance. Since the American Library Association, ALA, and Association of American Publishers helped launch Banned Books Week, BBW, 40 years ago, that dysfunctional family of censorship has unfortunately grown larger and more vociferous. Across the United States, this past year has brought a staggering increase in book challenges, bans, and other attacks on the right to read and academic freedom. Most efforts to curtail access to books involve younger readers at schools and public libraries. There are recurrent themes to such challenges that result in the muting of voices from outside the so-called mainstream of American society. According to the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom, the top 10 most challenged books in recent years are by or about marginalized people including BIPOC and LGBTQ plus authors and characters. These books typically address complex, challenging issues such as sexuality, abuse, and violence, or they simply use profanity. Some of the books reference traumatic realities in people's lives. Others question the societal status quo on issues from police violence to heteronormativity or identity politics. Regardless, all are important works of literature, including many artistic and broadly appealing comics that have something to teach us, especially in educational settings. However, increasingly, parents and local community members around the country disagree. In spring 2022, PEN America published findings from its first-ever Index of School Book Bans, a comprehensive count of more than 1,500 instances of individual books banned by some 86 school districts in 26 states between July 2021 and March 2022, impacting more than 2 million students. The ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom reported fielding 729 book challenges in 2021 alone, targeting nearly 1,600 titles at schools and universities. Both organizations clearly state that the number of reports received are only a fraction of the challenges and potential bans that occur, many of which result in books being removed from shelves in breach of existing policies without fanfare or public knowledge, and often under a cloud of fear among librarians, faculty, and staff. This rise in censorship comes at a time when the United States is in the throes of a larger moral panic epitomized by a corrosive cancel culture that spans the political spectrum from the right to the left. 
Although educators and concerned citizens have sounded the alarm, cancel culture has also galvanized students to fight back on the front lines, in classrooms and at school board meetings. Cameron Samuels did just that in their suburban Houston school district this past year as a high school senior with great success. Starting as a lone voice decrying parental challenges to books at their school, Samuels gradually built a coalition of students engaging the school board and broader community and creating a Freedom Week initiative that distributed more than 700 banned titles. The campaign Samuels led kept many challenged books on the shelves at the school's library, garnered national attention, and led to Samuels being recognized this year as BBW's first-ever Youth Honorary Chair. But challenges to books are not the only issue facing students and our schools. There has also been an increase in legislative efforts to curtail curriculum, controlling what can and cannot be taught, at least in 36 states. Another Penn America study, America's Censored Classrooms, measured a 250% increase over the past year in what the study refers to as educational gag orders. State legislative efforts to restrict teaching about topics such as race, gender, American history, and LGBTQ identities in K-12 and higher education. They include not only the infamous, quote, don't say gay law and stop woke act in Florida, which several other states are mimicking, but also legislative attacks on critical race theory, despite it seldom being taught in K-12 classrooms and requirements to enforce the teaching of more patriotic, read a critical, assessments of American history, whatever that may be. All of the bills were launched by Republicans in their respective states, with only one Democratic sponsor among them. While many in the GOP denounce cancel culture on the left, they seem to be perfectly fine controlling what can be read, discussed, and taught in the nation's schools. Moving forward, one thing is clear. Although the country is divided on many topics and issues, canceling views or perspectives with which one disagrees is not the solution. Open dialogue, discourse, and debate hold the answers to our current conundrum. Opposing censorship and supporting academic freedom must be bipartisan issues. It is one thing to prohibit one's own child from reading a specific book, short-sighted and ineffectual as that prohibition may be. It is another thing altogether to extend that forbidding desire to the public at large, depriving others of hearing the many wondrous and diverse voices that comprise our society. Children should not be taught to fear ideas different than their own, and adults should not let ignorance guide their civic engagement. For its 40th anniversary, the Banned Books Week Coalition's theme is Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us. Indeed, as we survey today's contentious political climate, we would all do well to pick up, read, and share a banned book or two. Doing so, we might discover amazing things about each other, not to mention ourselves. We can learn how to agree to disagree while honoring the higher ideals of an open society, free expression, and the right to read. Censorship anywhere is a threat to freedom everywhere. Celebrate Banned Books Week, September 18th through 24th, but stay vigilant and keep reading and sharing banned books every week throughout the year. Mickey Huff is director of Project Censored, president of the Media Freedom Foundation and a professor of history and journalism.
He is co-author of the critical thinking textbook, Let's Agree to Disagree, as well as the forthcoming The Media and Me, and is co-editor of Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2022. Project Censored is a longtime member of the Banned Books Week Coalition. This opinion column does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Sushi Journey by John Lendorf Sushi was far from hip in the mid-1960s when an eight-year-old named Gil Asakawa arrived in the U.S. from Japan with his family. Actually, few Americans had even heard of it. When they did, the initial reaction to sushi was less than enthusiastic. When we moved to the States, sushi was gross. Eat raw fish? Uh-uh, Asakawa says with a laugh. Now, sushi rolls are available at almost every supermarket. Kids take them for school lunch with that familiar green wasabi glob and pickle ginger. And sushi bars, including some with conveyor belts, abound. Ramen, too, has evolved from being an obscure Japanese noodle to a staple grocery item in American pantries, and ramen shops now popping up in shopping centers. Asakawa traces the path these foods, as well as tempura, haichus, and mochi, have taken in becoming mainstream in his engaging book, Tabe Masho, Let's Eat, A Tasty History of Japanese Food in America, freshly published by Stonebridge Books. More than a chronicle of the evolution of Japanese home-cooked, packaged, and restaurant foods in America, Tabemasho is an engaging first-person page-turner by the Tokyo-born author. I didn't want to write an academic research paper. It's personal. It's my journey through Japanese food, Asakawa says. Asakawa is a Colorado journalist, music critic, and author of the book Being Japanese American, an avid home cook and gardener, he writes about his foodie life in his blog, NikkeiView.com. His dining habits have always embraced both cultures with traditional American and Japanese dishes on the table. When I was a kid, we could be eating spaghetti and meat sauce, but there was always rice on the table, he says. Occasionally, the cultures would collide. I'd bring friends home after school, and my mom would be cooking dinner, and it would be something terrible smelling, like fish head soup. I'd have to say, sorry guys, my mom's cooking, and we'd run upstairs to my room, Asakawa says with a laugh. He also dismisses the touchy subject of culinary assimilation, the process where a dish like sushi or spaghetti gets Americanized and loses its cultural identity. It happened in Japan, too. I love Japanese curry. It's a thicker, milder gravy with potatoes and beef served over rice. I thought it was Japanese food when I was growing up, but it's really borrowed from the British, who stole it from India. Tempura came from the Portuguese, Asakawa says. Asakawa's family moved to Colorado in 1972, and Tabemasho explores the evolution of local Japanese restaurants, including such influential Denver eateries as Tokyo, Kokoro, and Sushi Den. Asakawa also spent time dining in Boulder at places like Pearl Street's Kobe-on, the city's first major Japanese eatery. Surprisingly, Kobe-on was not the eatery that introduced Boulder to the joy of raw fish. The first place in Boulder that had good sushi was Pelican Pete's, now the location for Backcountry Pizza and Tap House, in the early 1980s. It was a fish restaurant that shipped in fresh seafood, Asakawa says. 
They had a tiny sushi counter and hired a bunch of Japanese sushi chefs. My dad would take us all to Pelican Beats and spend two hours eating and yakking it up. The restaurant that probably did the most to popularize sushi in Boulder was Sushi Zanmai, which opened in 1986 under the direction of saxophone playing owner Masao Maki. Zanmai was big because it was rock and roll, Asakawa says. Maki brought a different American element to sushi bars. The Emperor and Empress of Japan even ate some of his food when they visited Colorado. He notes that Amu, Zanmai's sister eatery next door, was the first traditional izayaka to open in Colorado. An izayaka is a Japanese tavern that serves small plates. The process of culinary assimilation is a long path. For almost 100 years, there were only three kinds of Japanese food that most Americans knew sukiyaki, teriyaki, and tempura. Today, when you say Japanese food, most Americans have a similar tunnel vision. They think sushi and ramen, Asakawa says. Sometimes, when a dish migrates, it can get lost in translation. In Japan, even the best ramen is rarely over $10 a bowl. You can easily pay $17 or more at one of the fancy ramen places here, Asakawa says. It's great that ramen has caught on in such a way that hipsters will wait an hour for ramen that isn't necessarily that good. The book also explores the origins of American variations on a Japanese theme that can be viewed either as innovations or abominations. Take the hugely popular California roll. It was made by Japanese sushi chefs for Americans, Asakawa says. Other chapters focus on Japanese beverages and candies like high chews, mango is my favorite, and Kit Kat bars, a particular Japanese obsession. It's all written in Asakawa's witty, accessible voice. Asakawa devotes a section of Tabemasho to Japanese foods he believes Americans will never learn to like because of texture or aroma. There are a lot of popular foods in Japan that are slimy. Mountain yams are just all slime, he says. Natto, a popular Japanese fermented soy food, is distinctly sticky, stringy, and smelly. In the book, Asakawa reveals that some JAs, Japanese Americans, call it snato. Some delicacies, such as basahi, horse meat, and kujira, whale meat, will never be popular because of cultural and moral objections. In Tabemasho, Asakawa details a long list of the next Japanese foods rapidly gaining popularity. From wagyu beef and nori seaweed to matcha green tea, miso soup, and mochi. My hope is that people who like sushi and like ramen will read the book and get curious about tasting other things, like okonomiyaki, Asakawa says. Okonomiyaki are savory Japanese meat, vegetable, or fish pancakes now featured on many Japanese eatery menus. They are a specialty at Osaka's restaurant in Boulder. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles Thursday mornings on KGNU 88.5 FM. Streaming at kgnu.org. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777.